We continue our trek through Matthew this morning, the passage that Steve just uh, read for us. And as we enter this next section of Matthew, you may have already caught the theme a little bit of uh, exile. And I want you to think about the concept of exile with me for a moment. Exile, when exile happens, it's, it's of a people group in general, that's how we think of it generally, of a people group being removed from their, their home country, their, uh, their natural environment, environs, and for one reason or another, they can't get home. They're separated from home, and you can't get back. They're isolated. They're not whole. Um, and, usually, and, and, and with exile comes great grief, great sadness. Exile is not a natural condition, you might say. It's, there's, there's great grief and brokenness, lament over being separated from home. You can think of maybe in our day, uh, you think of refugees. You hear about refugees who have either come to our nation or maybe in the world they flee one nation because of maybe uh, religious or ethnic persecution to another nation. And, and, and in a sense, they're in exile. They're separated from their home and they, uh, they may try to do uh, the best they can where they're at, right? But there's grief, there's lament, there's not a wholeness. They're, they're separated. But you can also think of it, exile on an individual basis, too. We can think of examples where uh, someone is separated from what they might call home, separated from, their, their, from wholeness, from a natural uh, condition, uh, from, from being connected with others, from being in a place of security and wholeness. You can think of people like prisoners, right? Prisoners who have... Uh, committed a crime and they're, they're placed into prison, that's exile, right? Exile from their families, exile from society at large. And really it's due to their own sin, right? To their own uh, crimes they've committed. And yet even in that, there's grief, there's sadness of a sort that happens. Or you could think about it even in uh, outside of prison. You could think of think, people like uh, addicts, those who are enslaved to their own sin, to whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever it may be, and they begin to destroy their lives and to such an extent that they, they become a sort of exile because of their own sin, right? But even those folks, you would understand that they are experiencing exile. They are, they, 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 they're out of their homes. They're out of their uh, a, a safe and secure environment, and there's grief in that. Or you might think of someone like a divorced husband, right? That, that something fell apart in the marriage, and whether it, there's uh, uh, whether sin on both sides or one side or whatever it is, right? There's a separation. There's a breaking. There's a lament and a grief uh, and regret, right? That this is the sign, sort of things that come with exile. You see, the fact of the matter is, exile is one of the pervasive themes of the scriptures. If you think of the Garden of Eden as home, right, where we're supposed to be home in the presence of the Lord, humanity was supposed to dwell in God's presence and enjoy Him, but because of mankind's sin, they were exiled from Eden, weren't they? And even as you walk through the scriptures and you come to the nation of Israel and you see how they were exiled, they were first the, they, they were split as a people, northern kingdom in the, uh, and southern kingdom, but then ultimately their sin of each kingdom led each of those kingdoms, the northern and the southern, into exile. And yet what we see is as they're taken out of that land, they're placed into Assyria, into Babylon, they are 
grieved, they're sad, they are broken, they're separated. They are in exile, and they know it's ultimately due to their sin. And that's the case of mankind in general. We are exiled. This world is, in a sense, we kind of lose it, especially in the Western world where there's a lot of things to distract us from being in exile. There's a lot of things to mask that pain and that hurt and that grief of being away from God's presence. There's a lot of things to soothe that pain in a sense. And yet we, we if in our honest moments, we know we're not home, we're broken, we're separated, we are in exile. But in this passage this morning that we're going to look at, Matthew's going to connect with that theme. And really what Matthew does is he presents a kaleidoscope of images from Israel's past to show that Jesus is the one to finally deliver us from exile. You see what's going to happen in this passage. Jesus is still a baby. And in a sense, it seems like all of these events are kind of surrounding him and he's just kind of being dragged from one place to another. But really these events are sovereignly orchestrated by God to point to the fact that Jesus is the one to, to free his people from exile. We've been saying that in this first section in Matthew, Matthew is at pains to show that Jesus is the king. He is presenting the king. He's presenting the credentials for this one to be king. And you can remember even in the the genealogy where we started out, that genealogy moved from Abraham to David, the high point of Israel, and then it descended, really ultimately because of David's sin with Uriah and Bathsheba, to deportation in Babylon, to exile. And really what's going on, and you'll see this in this passage, is, is Israel, Matthew and, and Israel would have even felt this consciousness, that they're still, even though they came out of Babylon to an extent, even though they're back in their land to an extent, they are still very much in exile. They are still in the, under the thumb of a foreign power. They are still separated. Their nation and their, their people are not the way that God designed it. And so Matthew connects with that in this passage, and he shows that Jesus is the one who is ultimately to free from exile. So that's the big idea for this morning as we come to this passage, the the big idea that Matthew has for his Jewish audience, and that is even for us today. And this is the big idea, to entrust yourself to Jesus. That's what Matthew wants his audience to do. Entrust yourself to Jesus as the king who identifies with his people in exile to deliver them from exile. That's where we're going this morning. That's what we'll see in our passage. You need to entrust yourself to Jesus as the king who identifies with his people in exile to deliver them from exile. And what you're going to see in this passage, I don't know if you noticed when Steve read this, uh, each, uh, there's kind of three scenes in this passage and they each end with a fulfillment, uh, idea. Remember we talked about this idea. Matthew is using this language of fulfillment in these early chapters to present that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, that Jesus is the true king. And he does that here with three of those statements. And so those are what are going to drive us this morning. So first, let's see the king's solidarity with those in exile. The king's solidarity with those in exile. Look at verse 13. Now, when they had departed, that's the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So we see, uh, we saw the scene kind of set up last week. We saw the Magi talk with Herod, and Herod got the details of when the star had come so he can figure out how old uh, Jesus is. And really, he's hoping, he could, Herod had kind of sent the Magi on a mission and said, all right, uh, when you find him, let me know so he can pinpoint uh, and have a surgical strike against this upstart king, or at least maybe uh, someone who others would rally around to think that he was king. That's what Herod's desire was. And so there's this threat. There's this threat. And maybe the Magi told Joseph uh, about it. Uh, Maybe not. But in any case, an angel of the Lord, who's already kind of uh, spoken to Joseph earlier in chapter 1, when he told him to take Mary as his wife, uh, the angel says, uh, there's imminent danger. Rise, get up, go to Egypt. And notice the, the immediacy of the danger because Joseph gets up by night, right? Uh, he, he's dreaming, right? He hears, get up, go to Egypt. And it seems like he gets up right then and they go to Egypt because the danger is imminent. Bethlehem is only five or six miles south of Jerusalem. So it wouldn't take long for Herod to figure out uh, that he had been tricked. And so they get up and go. And again, we see Joseph as this model kind of uh, uh, person of obedience and to the Lord's command. He obeys right away. He obeys completely. But the key focus here, and where we're going to focus our time, we see these events happening. They go to Egypt, but it's not just the fact that they go to Egypt. You see, this is a state of affairs uh, superintended and sovereignly orchestrated by the Lord of all of history to place God, God the Son, the incarnated Son of God, to go to Egypt. And going to Egypt has significance. Going to Egypt has significance. You can think about it at one level. Have you ever heard of someone named Joseph hearing dreams uh, that would ultimately lead to his family going down to Egypt? Well, you should remember the end of Genesis, right? That, That Joseph is sent ahead to Egypt and he has these dreams and these dreams ultimately rescue the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes at that point, and bring them down to Egypt. So there's kind of an allusion to that fact. And, and the, the idea is that uh, already we see in that parallel that Jesus is being sort of identified at, with Israel, with the whole nation. But that fact is even drawn out more in this simple little quote, uh, this fulfillment idea that Matthew leads us to. This was to fulfill, key language for Matthew, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and the prophet he's referencing is the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son, which is from Hosea 11.1. Now, remember the idea of fulfillment. Uh, we've already seen this fulfillment idea before. And fulfillment can mean that a, a direct prediction of prophecy has come to pass. So remember the, the, the Emmanuel prophecy, we argued that that was a direct prediction and fulfillment. So here's a direct position, uh, pr- uh, pr- uh, pr- prediction, and it's been fulfilled. But the idea for Matthew of fulfillment is actually broader than that. You could think of the word meaning something like actualized. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean, need to be a prediction. It could just be a pattern, which is exactly what's going on right here. It's not so much a pre- direct prediction as it is a pattern. Uh, remember what we've been saying, too. Whenever Matthew alludes to or quotes from the Old Testament, 
uh, we need to go back. We need to go back to that uh, place in the Old Testament. We need to understand the passage in its original context, because Matthew is not just looking at that individual text. It's like a chain. It's like he's looking at the first link of a chain, but he's expecting you to pull that entire chain up and examine it and understand what he's getting at in Matthew. So let's go ahead and go back to Hosea. And you need to pay very close attention because what Matthew is doing here is very profound, but very complicated. Let's just read Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if I read that text on the surface of it, it's like, what is Matthew ta- or what is Hosea, excuse me, talking about? He's talking about the nation of Israel, and he is. And he's talking about the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, which he is. And so you might scratch your head for a second saying, well, wait a minute, why is Matthew applying that to Jesus? Well, this is where the complexity comes in, but also the profundity of what um, what Matthew is doing. First, you have to understand that what was, who was the audience Hosea was written to. It was written to, remember we said that uh, under David and under Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was one kingdom, and yet under Solomon's son Rehoboam, it split. And there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And that northern kingdom is whom Hosea is addressing. And he's addressing that northern kingdom right before they go into exile into Assyria. Essentially, he's, he, what Hosea does throughout his prophecy, he parallels uh, the northern kingdom uh, going to Assyria with them, in a sense, going back to Egypt. They're going back to their beginnings. They're going back to foreign oppression. And Hosea even says earlier on that, yes, you're going to go into exile uh, because of your idolatry, because of your sin, because of abandoning the Lord, you're going to go back to and be oppressed and brought into exile. And that's sort of a movement back in a sense, in a parallel sense to Egypt. We'll read the rest of chapter 11 here in a moment, and you'll see that, that paralleling happening. And what, what Hosea is doing when he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This is God speaking, and he's speaking back to and alluding to Exodus 4, through 23. In Exodus 4, through 23, God calls Israel, the nation, his firstborn son. And what does that mean? What does that mean for God to call Israel his firstborn son? Well, actually, the sonship language through Scripture, you could even take back to Adam. Adam was supposed to be God's son in the sense that he was God's representative ruler. Adam was to have an intimate relationship with God and have a stewardship rule over creation. But that, that function gets inherited. It gets inherited by the nation of Israel, who's supposed to uh, exercise a rule and a, a stewardship role under God. So uh, Israel is God's firstborn son, and he takes, out of love, his firstborn son out of Egypt. But that's not the only person who gets to inherit the, lang- uh, the language of sonship. We've talked about, you remember our series of Kingdom Through Covenant, where we talked through all those covenants, and you remember that one of the foremost and most important covenants in scripture, and one that Matthew has already been alluding to quite a bit, is the Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant, which is spoken of in 2 Samuel 7. And in 2 Samuel 7, 14, as God establishes this covenant with the kings that are coming from David's line, he says, they have a sonship relationship to me. I will be his God and he shall be my son. 
And why would he use that language? He uses it of Israel, and then he uses it of the king, but why? Because the king has solidarity with the nation. In essence, the king of the nation is the nation in a person. The king of the nation is the nation in a person. He's the nation's representative. In fact, you see that in scripture. Wherever the kings go, the whole nation goes. That's why we see when the king's disobedient in judges, or in kings, rather, that the nation follows. And when the king is obedient, the nation follows. And what's interesting, once you get to the prophet Hosea, where the nation of Israel is about to go into exile because of their sinfulness and because of the sinfulness of their kings, Hosea, back in chapter 3, go ahead and turn back there, says, yes, you are going to go into exile. You're going to go into exile. But in Hosea 3, uh, 3, 4, he says this, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to Yahweh and to his goodness in the latter days. You see it? That he's predicting that you're going to go away into exile, but the one who's going to bring you out of exile is the ultimate Davidic king. Which sets up for Hosea 11, which is where Matthew's quoting from. And we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter, right? So we read the first verse, but now you've already seen earlier in Hosea this setup that the Davidic king who has solidarity with his people, who's called God's son, and the nation's called God's son, how that nation is going to come back. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It was God's love for Israel that drew him out to begin with. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they refuse to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. But then notice this, this change in verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like, like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares Yahweh. You see it again, the, return, the, the going to exile in Assyria and the coming again as from Egypt and Assyria in a sort of second exodus. The original exodus, it was God's love that pulled Israel, his son, out of Egypt. But even though Israel is going into Egypt again, as it were, God will once again, because of his love, draw them out, and he will draw them out through the Davidic king who is also called God's son. 
So as we go back to Matthew, what is Matthew saying in a few short words? He's alluding to the fact that what's going on? Here's the Davidic king. He's already said that. He's already made that claim. Here's the ultimate Davidic king in Jesus. And God is sovereignly moving him down to Egypt so that just as he's delivering Jesus from Egypt to bring him back to Israel, that's the exact same sort of thing he's going to do with Israel as the whole nation because the king has solidarity with his people. He identifies with his people. Which as we think about what is Matthew doing with this, he's trying to point up the fact, here's the true king, and all these are the true king, the king, but the king has solidarity with his people, and even to the point of the suffering and the sadness and the grief of exile. That's true for Israel, but it's also true for us and the whole human race who's in exile. Think about what God the Son did, right? He added to his deity a humanity, and he entered a fallen world is in exile. He entered exile to defeat exile, and he has solidarity with us. So as we feel the brokenness of this world, the, the, the grief of it, he identifies with it. As we grieve, as we feel brokenness, as we see even the brokenness and the sadness caused by our own sin, Jesus never sinned, but he felt he entered a world where the effects of sin were rampant. And he entered it to have solidarity with his people, with those who entrust themselves to him, which would be immensely comforting to us. Jesus knows what life as a human in a world in exile is like, and he sympathizes, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And he calls you to entrust yourself to him as the one who will ultimately deliver you from that exile. So that's the first thing we see in this passage, the king's solidarity with those in exile, his sympathy, his identity with those in exile, which is profound. But next we see this, the king's reward for the grief of exile. The king's reward for the grief of exile. Look at verse 16 through verse 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the Magi. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So again, we see the events. We see how Herod has schemed, and he was hoping to find the particular house and the particular baby and just deal with him directly. And yet what has happened to hedge his bets, he knows the age, he knows the area, and to hedge his um, bets, he kills all two-year-olds and under, not just in Bethlehem, but the surrounding area. Uh, we're talking probably many miles Ramah is, uh, is five miles north of, Beth, uh, of J Jerusalem, sorry, five miles north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem's six miles south, 
So we might even expect that it, it, he could have taken a five-mile radius around Jerusalem. We don't know. We don't know to the extent, but the idea is there's this extensive slaughter of the most innocent people you can think of because a king is trying to protect, an illegitimate king is trying to protect his throne and his rule and his dynasty. But again, what's Matthew pointing up here? He's pointing up the fulfillment. We get another fulfillment. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, and then he quotes a verse, Jeremiah 31, 15. And we're going to go back there here in a second, but let me give you the context of Jeremiah. Just like Hosea was written right before Israel went into exile, Jeremiah was written uh, a century and a half later before Judah goes into exile. And, uh, what, uh, and, and what you see in Jeremiah is, is really, uh, he, he's there right before the exile happens, and he experienced these, the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. But he is essentially, his ministry is a pronouncement of judgment. Judgment, 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 because you have forsaken the true and living God. You've gone after idols, you've forsaken me, therefore judgment is coming because of your sin. So most of Jeremiah's prophecy, if you read through Jeremiah, it's really negative. It's really sad because you're going into exile. Yet there is a bright spot. In Jeremiah 30 through 33, which is where the quote is taken from, it's known as, uh, within Jeremiah, the book of consolation. Because as a whole, Jeremiah 30 through 33 is really positive. It's really happy. Because uh, what God is going to do, he's saying, yes, you're going into exile, but just like what Hosea said, you're going to come out. You're going to come out. You're going to come out of exile, and um, you're going to be led by the Davidic king, the Messiah, and you're going to be given a new covenant. The new covenant is spelled out in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So in, the, in connection with being pulled out of exile, it's with the Davidic king, as we saw in Hosea, but it's also with a new covenant as compared to the Mosaic covenant that was given at Mount Sinai. So it's really interesting that Matthew quotes this verse in 31.15, because if you were to read the rest of chapter 31, everything is upbeat. Everything is happy. He quotes the only sad verse in Jeremiah 31. Why does he do that? Well, he does that for a purpose. Now let's, let's get some more details. Uh, let's go, go ahead and turn over to Jeremiah. Go ahead and turn over to Jeremiah 31. But let's talk about the details uh, of how did this verse, Jeremiah 31, 15, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So let's figure out how does this verse fit in Jeremiah 31. First, uh, remember we said Ramah is actually six miles, uh, sorry, five miles north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is six miles uh, south. Now, if you look back in Genesis, you find out that Rachel died and was buried in Bethlehem. Uh, she was buried in Bethlehem. So the idea is uh, she's weeping from her grave from Bethlehem, but that weeping is so loud and so grievous that it's being heard about 10 or 11 miles away in Ramah. And Ramah is in the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin and Judah kind of got lumped together after the split 
of the kingdoms. Now, what's she weeping over? Well, she's weeping over her children. Who were Rachel's children? Her children were Benjamin and Joseph. Benjamin was the tribe that got lumped in with Judah. Joseph's kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, became true tribes, and they were associated with the northern kingdom. So those northern kingdoms we already saw got taken away into exile, um, and uh, that would be something to weep over. But then even Benjamin, who stuck with Judah after the split, now there in Jeremiah, now they're being taken away into exile. Ramah was kind of a, uh, a, uh, it was kind of a staging point for the people being gathered and taken away into Babylon. So we kind of understand why is she weeping. It's because the children that are slaughtered in connection with the war that has led Israel into exile because of their sin, she is weeping over that. But notice verse 16. Thus says Yahweh, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares Yahweh. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares Yahweh, and your children shall come back to their own country. We see it again. You're in exile, but you're going to be brought out of exile. And even the grief, the legitimate grief that is happening, it's not for nothing. It's not for nothing. It is producing something. It is meaningful in that sense. Now, how is Matthew using this? Well, Matthew is essentially saying, remember, he presents Israel as still being in exile, and he's just showing this is still happening. What Herod did as a, a, an Edomite king illegitimately ruling over Israel and slaughtering these Jewish children, it's the same sort of effect of exile. It's continuing not only uh, to, from Jeremiah's day and even from Hosea's day all the way up to Jesus' day and to the slaughter. It's just another evidence of the grief of Israel being in exile. Even Herod is sort of presented as a, a Pharaoh-like figure who's slaughtering Hebrew boys just like, just like Pharaoh did in the original exodus with the Hebrew boys. But the point is this, the point is this, this was sovereignly ordained by God to point up the fact that Yes, there is grief and sadness and exile. But Jesus is the ultimate Davidic king who's going to end it and make the grief meaningful. Matthew's point to his Jewish audience, and even to us as we think about us as the, part of the human race being in exile, his point is this, look to the king who will end all the grief, the lamentation of exile. There is pain, suffering, mourning, and atrocities here, but one day they will end. We like to hide from grief. We don't like to acknowledge that grief is there. There's the grief of death, the grief of injustice, the grief of oppression, the grief over pain and suffering. There's even similar griefs to what we see in Matthew. There's the grief over the slaughter of innocent babies. Our own country, slaughter of abortion that happens over and over and over again, day after day. That's just part of the grief of exile, of being outside of Eden. 
But here's the point. It's not meaningless. God is doing something through this, and Jesus is the one who will ultimately come back to rescue us from the grief of exile. That's Matthew's point, and that's the point for us. So first, we've seen the king's solidarity with those in exile. Next, we've seen the king's reward for the grief of exile. And finally, we see the king's righteousness for rescue from exile. So let's look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Archelaus was Herod's son, and just like Herod was uh, protective and paranoid and uh, brutal in his rule, Archelaus was no better, but without any of Herod's skill. In fact, he ended up getting deposed as king over Judea. So Archelaus has reigned not over all of Israel, but just Judea in the south. And then Galilee is under the reign of his brother, Herod Antipas. And uh, Archelaus eventually gets deposed in AD 6, so several years after this. Uh, but uh, he's not a good guy. So it makes sense what Joseph is, um, does. So he hears that Archelaus is, his, it seems like Joseph's intention is to go right back to Bethlehem. He's going to go right back to Bethlehem, which is in Judea, but then he hears about Archelaus, and it's like, well, we had problems with Herod. Likely we're going to have problems with Archelaus, and then he gets a dream to confirm it, so then he moves to the north in Galilee and ultimately in Nazareth. Nazareth is a small, small town. 60 acres would be about the size of the city limits of Nazareth. And maybe in the first century, there were about 480 people living here. Now, it's a small city, and it's small in that day, and it's small in our day, right? Very small city. In fact, it was kind of had a, a kind of a hick from the sticks sort of reputation. You kind of see this in, in the rest of the Gospels, even the Gospel of John. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is not a well-known city. It's, it's, it's out in the... The, the, the country, it's where the country bumpkins live, you know, something like that. It's about 15 miles west of the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, uh, and about in line with that. So it's, it's, it's out there, and this is where Jesus grew up. This is where Jesus grew up. But again, what's Matthew's point? What's Matthew pointing out? He's pointing out that God is sovereignly orchestrated and moving the pieces. Uh, he's moving his son uh, to uh, Nazareth. Why? To, again, uh, fulfill prophecy. And this one's probably the most difficult of all the ones we've seen to understand. And yet, again, it is profound what is being communicated he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken of by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, there's a couple things you should notice. Notice there's many prophets who prophesy this, not one, right? The other two, there's been one prophet. Now we've got many. Second, this is not a direct quote. 
The others were direct quotes. This is not a direct quote. There is no quote in the Old Testament that says the Messiah will be uh, born in Nazareth. There's none that directly say that. So what's Matthew doing? What's going on here? Well, the Hebrew word for one of the key Hebrew, one of the Hebrew words for branch is the word called Nazareth. So you can kind of hear that word Nazareth in it. Nazareth, Nazareth, right? It's a similar sound. And Nazareth, as a, as a place name, probably meant something like Branchville, right? So Nazareth is Branchville. Um, and the people who come from Branchville, what are people from Branchville called? They're called branches, right? Uh, you come from Branchville, you're, you're a branch, right? So here's where the profundity comes in. Turn to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. We've seen Matthew quote Isaiah already, the Emmanuel prophecy, and really that section where the Emmanuel prophecy is, is the same section that has Isaiah 11, which is another messianic text. Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, that's our word Nazareth, from the roots shall bear fruit. Now, what's the picture here? Well, in context, Isaiah, like the other Hosea and Jeremiah that we've seen, he's talking about Israel, or Judah in this case, you're going to go into exile. And Israel, who's often compared to this vine, this luxuriant vine who has has fruitfulness, it's become a degenerate vine because of its sin, and it's going to get chopped off. It's going to get leveled. And so is the Davidic dynasty, which is why we have this stump metaphor here. The Davidic dynasty gets cut off. It looks like it is a stump. And yet, what we see here, it looks like it's over, right? That Judah's over, that the Davidic kingdom is over. But what Isaiah is doing here says it's not over. There's going to be a Nazareth, a branch that's going to come from this roots that's going to have fruitfulness. What Israel is supposed to be in being fruitful and what the Davidic dynasty is supposed to be in being fruitful, this individual is going to bear fruit. Let's keep reading in Isaiah 11. And the spirit of the Lord and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze and their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be covered with the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time 
to recover the remnant that remains of the people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble, assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Do you see it? It's the exact same thing that Hosea and that Jeremiah said. You're going to go into exile, but you're going to be led out. And not just Israel, but the nations by the Davidic king, a branch. And what's fascinating is, is that Isaiah continues to use this botanical imagery of branch. He uses different words, but he uses that same concept throughout his prophecy. In Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, it speaks of the shoot out of dry ground that no one paid attention to, but that's the one that's going to atone for his people's sin and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Even in Isaiah 60, verse 21, he calls Israel uh, a branch of righteousness that uses the word Nazar because the Davidic king is going to lead his people out. He's going to provide righteousness to them so that the Israel is going to be called righteous, dealing with the problem of exile to begin with. Why did Israel go into exile to begin with? Why does anyone go into exile? Because of sin and because of the effects of sin. So if the branch deals with sin, he deals with the problem of exile. Jeremiah 23. Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah picks up on the same imagery. He reads Isaiah. Jeremiah comes later, a century later, and he reads Isaiah, and he picks up on this messianic imagery of branch. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So he's going to be righteous, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called Yahweh is our righteousness. Even in the book of Consolation, remember we talked about that in Jeremiah 30 through 33. 33 Jeremiah 33, 15 talks about how uh, God's going to bring Israel back with the Davidic king, and then Israel is going to be called Yahweh is our righteousness. And then it gets picked up by the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah, who comes after the kind of initial return from exile, he says this uh, branch uh, in Zechariah 3, 8 through 10 is going to deal with the iniquity of his people in one day. And not only that, in Zechariah 6, 12 through 13, the branch is going to build the temple of the Lord. Remember from our discussion of the covenants, what's the sign of the covenant? That, uh, what, what's, uh, what's the sign of the temple? Which covenant? It's the Davidic covenant. So this, I believe, is what Matthew is alluding to. Many prophets speaking about this branch imagery and God sovereignly orchestrated events so that a little town called Branchville would produce a branch that would fulfill these prophecies. But what's the main point, right? What's the main point with the branch imagery? The branch is a righteous branch and will provide righteousness for his people, which deals with the core of exile. You see, the, even exile from Eden, God has shown mercy by allowing humans to exist. He provides for them on a day, day in and day out basis, those who even hate him, his enemies. But there's a final exile of God's judgment that's appointed for man to die once, and then is God's judgment. And the ultimate exile is not 
being exiled from Eden necessarily. It's being exiled to his eternal judgment in hell, where he is present to exact justice for those who have sinned against him, who have offended his majesty and his holiness. That is the ultimate of exile. But there is a righteous branch who can deal with the source of exile, with your sin. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Jesus was counted as sin, your and my sin on the cross. For those who would entrust themselves to him, he was the, our record of debt with its legal demands, namely an eternal weight of wrath of God was nailed to him on the cross. But then on the reverse side, his righteousness as the righteous branch was imputed to those who would entrust themselves to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so now for those who entrust themselves to Jesus, to this righteous king, there is no condemnation now. But it's not only that, it's not only that Jesus saves us from the position of being sinners, right? That God sees us as righteous with the righteousness of Christ. But it also make Jesus has made it so that you and I don't have to sin any longer. Romans 6 talks about how we're in Christ now. We do not have to sin. We do not have to be unrighteous because Christ has delivered us from the slavery of that exile. And for those who entrust themselves to him, the future holds perfect sinlessness in his presence in a return home to Eden, where God will set up his kingdom over the whole planet and being able to enjoy the presence of the triune God forever. And then and only then will we feel that sense of return from exile, that sense of being home, of being whole with our great God and Savior. So what is the call? What is Matthew's call? What's the call for us? Call is to, here's the king. Here's the one that God has sovereignly identified, even in the movements as him as a child, to be the one who delivers from exile. So what do you do? What's the proper response? The only proper response is to entrust yourself to Jesus as the king who identifies with his people in exile to deliver them from exile. Let's pray and give thanks, and then we have an opportunity to celebrate this in the Lord's Supper. Jesus, you are the righteous branch. We thank you for coming from nowhere, in a sense, but from, from the most profound place of glory to identify with us, your people, to deal with our sin that has caused all the horrors of the world, and that we experience that alienation from God's presence, the grief that our sin causes for ourselves and for others around us, the injustice, the impression that is in the world, you will deal with that, Lord Jesus, and we look to you and we ask that you would come, Lord Jesus, and yet we also ask that we would be people who entrust ourselves to you, and for those who do not know you, who are still in that exile from even knowing you, that you would grant repentance, that you would grant salvation, that we would speak of you, 
that we would speak of you as the only king to deliver from exile. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for delivering us. Lord, we ask that we would live lives that honor and please you and that we would honor you, our great and matchless king. We thank you for the opportunity to celebrate that now in the Lord's Supper. Thing that you have given, the sign of the new covenant that you have given to her to remember what you've done in breaking us out of exile. We ask for help now, even as we celebrate in your name. Amen.